Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 58 and we're sticking with the same format that we had in 57 and we're also sticking with something else, Ronan. Yes, he's a very sticky gentleman. Welcome back to the Game Pit twice in two episodes, Stephen Paget. Hello boys, I'm so glad to be back. Well, I'll tell you what, last time we had to wear tuxes, this time it's mankinis. What's wrong with you boys? Listen, looking at you two in mankinis is about the worst sight I've ever had to behold in my entire life. But I'm very happy to be here. Especially as we're sharing one. <laughs> joined back-to-back mankinis. <laughs> that is an image I do not want in my head. You started it, mankini boy. Well, we were glad to have Steve back, but second thoughts now. For this episode, episode 58, hello, it's Ronan here. We are going to be spending the first section discussing games... We never play, but we can't get rid of from our collections. We've each made three choices for that. And for our review, we're going to be looking at Nations and the expansion, just briefly, Nations Dynasties, which came out at Essen 2015. Steve, you excited? You ready? I am all ready and raring. I mean, I'm sliding around a bit on the leather seats with my bare backside, you know, in this thing, but it's okay. That'll be the sweat. Mankini and, and leather seating don't mix very well. We we hope it's the sweat. As always, we can be found on the Dice Tower Network along with a whole host of fantastic gaming podcasts. We're also to be found on 2d6.org. Go there for audio, written and visual gaming goodness. So we had a little chat about what we thought might be interesting to talk about and Steve in fact came out with an idea we thought might be interesting. Steve what do you think we want to talk about this time? I was racking my brains to think of something that might be a little bit more uh, I don't know off the wall and I thought to myself I've got a few games in my cupboard which I don't play but then again when it comes up to trades or something I never trade them so I've got games in my cu- cupboard which I don't play but I hang on to them. So I thought it might be interesting to talk about those and see why we do that. Yeah, if you're ever going to find three fellas with too many games and not enough time to play them all, we're definitely there somewhere in the line. Uh, my first choice is Nightfall. It's from David Gregg and AEG 2011. It's a horror-themed deck builder in which players are directly attacking each other and basically it's last person standing is going to win. And you're playing down cards and you're creating chains of cards and cards chain off each other and they have individual powers and i really really enjoy nightfall for various reasons <laughs> we're gonna hear from steve and deck builders but i generally like deck builders and in this one it's got the novel idea of while there are some cards in the middle which anyone can buy at the beginning you draft some cards which only you can buy from now it's only a couple of cards but actually there aren't that many cards in each setup of the game despite the fact there's a huge variety of cards in the whole system now and they chain off different colours and if you're able to choose cleverly and look at what other people are buying you can jump in and on their turn you can play cards which will take effect before their cards do and you can jump in and attack each other and it just plays differently to other deck builders it's much more direct in its conflict 
that's one of the reasons I think why it's hard to get to play because it's very punchy and it's very in your face. It takes people back a little bit. There is the chance of getting slightly dodgy setups. If you don't know the game very well, the private cards you choose may not work well with the other cards around the table. I actually owned it, got rid of it, and got it back again because I can't let this one go. I love the theme, but it really needs the right group. It needs repeated plays. I think they didn't do it many favours because they released six big expansions in the first two years that this was out. But for me, Nightfall is a really good game, which I can't bring myself to get rid of, but I just never play it. We played this when you first bought this, Ronan, and yeah, I think that's what put me off. It was really, really punchy, and just nothing that I could even consider playing at home with the wife. But I think it's kind of got lost in this sea of deck builders at the moment. There's there's some really thematic deck builders out there, and this one just kind of got lost, and it just fades into obscurity, because as you said, there are some unique factors to it, but it just doesn't stand out from the crowd, Ronan. I think they confuse the issue by releasing so much. You look at it and you go, Martial Law, Crimson Rage, like, well, which, one, which one do I need? And it's that kind of, you get blindness to a product, don't you? And you go, oh, I don't, oh, forget about it, I can't even be bothered. Is it still available? It's still around. They haven't printed any new cards for two and a half years now. It all, 2013, they stopped releasing them. But yeah, it's still around. You can still get hold of it. Well, I'm not, I don't remember seeing it anywhere, but I mean, I, I, I downloaded the app, um, gosh, I don't know, ages ago. And I found the whole thing very confusing. And actually, when you were describing it then, when you said you can jump in during other people's turns and chain off their cards, and it sounds chaotic. But I, I, I haven't played it, so I can't comment on that. Why, why is it then you think you want to keep it around? Why is it about it you makes you want to... You don't play it, obviously. <laughs> All of these games, when are going to say, I'd never play it, but I can't let it go. What is it about it? It is the fact that it does something quite clever with deck building. It's the fact I think the potential is there for people to learn the cards and then there to be much greater depth in play. And the fact that you can't just play willy-nilly because if you know someone has got, let's say, a card that chains off yellow moons over in their private stash you know they've probably got a few of them in their deck and so you're then more careful about playing cards with yellow moons but that takes a while to learn it takes a while to learn it doesn't matter if they play that card chaining off me but that card i really want to avoid so because what you're doing is you're building kind of patterns of cards in your hand so you play a card that has got a green moon on it you play the next card that chains from green and it's got a purple moon on it and you play another card that's got a purple moon and so on and so forth but you want to be able to do that without allowing other people in and i just think if you get everyone concentrated and watching and judging and seeing what cards have been played what cards haven't been played there's a real great game there it just takes a lot of investment yeah okay well um, you sound really convinced no, no, I, 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 you know you're, you're giving me a, me and deck builders are getting a bad name and I don't quite know why because <laughs> I do like deck builders or, or at least I like it as a mechanic I mean I'm not a fan of Dominion particularly but I mean I like the sort of deck building mechanic it sounds interesting it sounds different uh, I'd have to play it, I suppose, to uh, to really have a decent opinion. And I'm sorry that I haven't. But you've never you've never sort of touted it as a game we should ever go on. So um, I don't know. I'll play it, Ronan, if you can ever bear to get it out on the table. We used to be really cult of the new, didn't we? And it's not until fairly recently that you and I have been playing these same games, or trying to play the same games again and again and again. I think I I just never thought it fit in the way that we were playing games in our group when it first came out five years ago. But anyway, you've chosen something that is in no way punchy, doesn't cause any arguments and no interaction at all, haven't you, for your game? Uh, yeah, I've chosen a game called Inca Empire. 
It was originally a crayon game. It was called Tawantin Suyu, I believe. And uh, this version, the version that I've got, Inca Empire, came out at Essen. Um, I think it was 2010. Uh, I was certainly there anyway. I was very excited about picking this up. Um, I'd seen uh, reviews about Tawantin Suyu, and I, I thought, yeah, that sounds interesting. So in this game, obviously, it's about the Inca Empire. The Inca Empire is conveniently divided up into uh, four parts, and... Um, each player is, is an, an Apu, he's a, uh, a leader of one of the four regions, and um, he's basically trying to impress the Divine Emperor, the, the Sapa Inca. And so you're building roads, you're building temples, you're establishing cities. The thing about it is, it, it, it's quite clever actually because all the, uh, the, the empires work in as a whole, but each player is individually trying to impress the emperor the most. But there's a very interesting um, mechanic where you have cards, they're called sun cards, which you get to play on a grid which is divided into quarters. If you, this game actually only plays with three or four players. You can't play it with two players. When you play one of these cards, they either do nice things or they do horrible things. But the trick is, when you play it, it's going to affect two players. So if you play a good card to help yourself, you're also going to help one other player. Uh, conversely, if you play a, a nasty card and you want to hurt a particular player, you may have to hurt yourself too. That's a very unique mechanic which um, I've not seen elsewhere. The other thing is, you score points for building your roads, establishing your temples, uh, establishing the cities, but other people, if they can connect their road network to the things that you've built, will also score points often. They sort of leech off it. So it, is, it, it encourages you to try and build your road network in amongst the other players. It's quite unique. I bought it in Essen. I think I've played it twice. And it sits in my cupboard, but I never get it out. I seem to remember the couple of plays of it I had were quite long. I, I, I think that one of the games, I think it was with you, Ronan, we had a sort of slight runaway leader issue. But I think that's because, a bit like your Nightfall, you have to get to know the game a little bit. It's quite unique, so you can't play it just like you play normal Euros. It's got a certain... You know, you've got you've got to keep yourself close to other players in order to score points off the things they build. You've got to be very um, you've got to be very careful how you play the sun cards because they're extremely valuable, and you've got to make sure you don't help the wrong person or or hinder yourself. Um, yeah, I, th I think when people first approach the game, they're looking at it, and you're building your own thing, you're building your own temples, you're just trying to score victory points, and you think, oh, I know how this goes, and exactly what you just said, you don't know how it goes, yes. because it is much, much more aggressive than you think it's going to be, and that first couple of times people start leeching off each other, you go, oh... And the first time you build something and someone else comes in and gets as much of a benefit of your hard work as you are, it's, oh. And then you're looking at, oh, how do I get my roads in? It's a really good game. I very much enjoyed my couple of plays of it. You know, there are games which have catch-up mechanisms, but this has got something which also sort of reflects the theme insofar as the person who's furthest ahead on the uh, victory points track at the end of a round has to give the player who's last place in victory points has to give them some workers. That's kind of, you know, you don't, you're not just giving them victory points, but you have to give them workers. It's a bit blatant. Um, yeah, it's a bit blatant. It's all part of the fun, boys. It's all part of fun. What I was going to say, and Steve kind of illustrated the point really well there, was that the, the one thing that would stop me recommending this game or asking for it is because it's stressful. Yeah, yeah. It's meaningful. Everything you do can open the window for another player. You can make a mistake and suddenly they're jumping in. And it's not just you that you've, you've hindered. You've hindered the other players as well. And they're like, what'd you do that for? Oh, you're like, oh, that was an obvious move. Or why'd you play that card that way? Which is part of the fun. 
but also is part of one of the reasons why you go, oh, I don't know, am I in a mood for that tonight? It's so tight. Every action matters. When it comes down to it, it's not that often I'm going to look at it and think, oh, yeah, Incan Empire, that would be a nice relaxing way to spend three hours. Yeah, I was one of the other players when we actually did play it, Steve, with Ronan absolutely That's right, yeah, yeah, you us. were, yeah. And I, I, can't, I can't remember it. I remember it being a good game, but I remember there being a bit of a bad taste in the mouth with, uh, with everyone afterwards. And there was kind of an atmosphere for about half an hour after <laughs> the game. And that's kind of put me off ever wanting to really say, yeah, let's get that out again. Do, do you know what, boys? Do you know what? It's tough to get a well done round here. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. A well played and no, a shake I mean, of the hand wouldn't you know, go miss down game. there. I, I explained it so there was no way I was going to win anyway. You know how that works. <laughs> excuses, excuses. All right. Sean, <laughs> well, your first choice. My one is a, a funny little one that I've actually tried to trade a few times because I can never get to the same. That's mostly because it's a three-player game and I, I don't get to play three-player games quite a, often enough but this game is it's quite famous it's quite an old game it's um mr knizia one of his earlier efforts and strozzi is based on basically choosing ships from a deck of cards and you're going to deliver goods to different ports and each port would take a different type of goods and you can steal other people's ships and it's a Euro McEuro set in Euro land. It's very, very Euro. Pick up and deliver with a bit extra thrown in. Very simple mechanics. Very easy to teach. And I think it's actually quite a rewarding game. But I just never get it to the table. I don't know whether it's it's showing its age a little bit now. It's only 2008, so it's not ancient. But I don't know whether it's just starting to show its age or other games have slightly usurped it. But it just never gets to my table. But I just... I still want I want to play it. I want it to be in my collection in case I do get that chance to play a three- or a four-player game. Yes, Strozzi. No, I've played this. It benefits from having six players, or, or the more the, be- the merrier, right? Yeah, absolutely, um, which is why I very rarely get to play it. But it's it's nice. Be- I've got a copy. Mine, mine never gets played either. I've probably got several games that could have honourable mentions in this list. It, but it's good because it plays six, and it, play, it plays in about an hour. I think it's fairly fast, and... Um, I quite like auctions, uh, and I think some of the decisions in this are very they're hard ones to make. I think it's a good game. It's probably because it falls in that it's that intermediate. It's like it's not a it's not a full evening's game, but it's it's relatively the the decisions are quite difficult. Your bidding's quite hard, so it's it's a it's not a full evening game, but it's fairly heavy. I found it really easy to learn, Stephen, but also it's an easy one to teach, even though there are hard decisions in it. It's just there's nothing too taxing in in order to explain to other players. No, it's simple to teach. I agree, but when it comes down to it, that you know, you, when you're deciding, do I bid on this or do I wait for a, a higher number one to come out? I really could do with those goods, but uh, it's the, the decisions of angst-ridden. Oh, angst-ridden uh, Venetian bidding. <laughs> you played it, Roman? No, I've played it several yeah. times. Yeah, I played it with you. I've played it at London board. And it, it is an interesting game. I really like auction games as a mechanism. This is, is a good one. But the reason it doesn't get played is because of the theme and the looks of it. And they absolutely murder it. Because when you go to anyone, do you want to play this game about merchants bidding for sort of some goods and then like your ships can get fast and then there's like some sort of reward for getting lots of spices and people just, their eyes glaze over. <laughs> the game itself is interesting, but it's just fallen into that Eurozone of... No one can be bothered. 
Yeah, and I think what you're saying about the looks as well, Ronan, the board does look very simplistic. It's just uh, just absolutely no detail, really. The scoring tracks, yeah. you see ships, you see pictures of a bag of spice, and you just go, oh, mate, you know, you've got to give me something new, give me something else. Well, at least I do half the time anyway. To my chagrin, because I quite, quite like a lot of games with that sort of theme on them. Um, so, moving from Struzzy onwards to Deadwood, it's a 2011 game designed by Loic Lamy. It was originally a Dust Games game, but Fantasy Flight Games picked it up, I think, when they bought Dust Games. It's a Wild West-themed worker placement game, which are trying to make the most money. Players have got workers of different values, one, two, or three, and that's a combat value. On your turn, you're going to place your cowboys in a building inside the town of Deadwood, or you're going to retrieve all your cowboys from the board, which is going to free up the buildings, and the timing is an interesting part of the game. All the buildings are different. They all have different effects. They're going to earn you money, get better at fighting, to place more buildings, etc. You can, however, place your worker where another cowboy is and that will cause a fight and you can be able to add a bullet to the fight to give you an extra dice roll and whoever's got the highest strength gets to roll the difference in strength on dice so say I was two stronger than Sean's cowboy I'd roll two dice first if all the fires are wounds or a six will instantly kill him if he's still alive we then both simultaneously roll our dice one at a time until we get we've rolled enough dice to cover our combat strength it's possible to kill cowboys and not that person's work and completely out of the game which is one of the interesting features i know that steve and i've been talking about carson city recently and the jewels in there where you can put cowboys in you don't get to use the building in this one your cowboys die and you have really a limited number of workers you've got to try and get them out again and one of the in- end game conditions is that someone loses all their cowboys which is completely possible that is part of again the players control when this game ends as well as cowboys die and they build a railway which goes to the town and how quickly they do that dictates how it goes there's a lot of subtlety in controlling the different buildings and the timing of where you put your strongest cowboys and how long you leave them there for and there's a chance to move a sheriff around who, who makes sure buildings can't be fought in and what to control and what not to control and the game takes a little bit of learning but you can then be screwed by slightly random with the combat and while it takes a bit to learn my only issue is I'm not sure it's deep enough to warrant that learning and I've never got there with a game group again to really dig into it three four five six plays and say we know this game well it's always been one that I bring out we play everyone goes oh that was interesting but I don't feel like I got the best out of it and it doesn't get played again for another year so Deadwood is definitely one I'm hanging on to but I never play it it looks to me like it's uh, it's Fantasy Flight Silverline, right? It's terribly light of me, but it just looks... I don't want to play it. it. Just looking at the box, it's just just a small little box. It looks like a little filler. How long does it play? How long is it a game? Probably, I'd say, an hour, an hour and a quarter. Yeah, it's probably falling into the same territory as Strozzi insofar as it's not a full game, a full evening's game. And, and it's just one of those funny, not quite a filler, not quite a full game. Would you would you think? I think there's a fair amount there. I think uh, I don't know whether the box puts people off or not, but it, it isn't random. It, it is very thinky. It is controlling. I just don't know that it's deep. I've never seen your copy. I've never. I've never. Does it ever see the light of day? <laughs> mm, very occasionally. <laughs> Or is it sort of hidden down the back of the wardrobe somewhere? <laughs> I'll defend those silver line fantasy flight games. Isn't Kingdoms one of those? Oh, yeah, as well? I've got that. There's yeah. some good games that. In also that also doesn't That's see the light game. today very often. <laughs> Sean, save me from, from old Mr. Judgmental. I think we played this, Ronan. I remember, I remember the fighting mechanism. It didn't leave me 
wanting to play it much more. You get a wanted thing if you attack, and that has a negative impact at the end of the game, the more wanted posters you've got. I felt like that mechanism was in the game. Everything else encouraged you to do it, but then that sort of discouraged you from doing it, and... I felt in the game we played, everyone was a bit frightened to attack, and that would have been the fun part of the game. Other than that, I thought it was quite bland. So, but then, and everyone was actually frightened to do the fun part of the game. So, yeah, I, I wasn't bowled over by it. I'd certainly give it another go, but yeah. I quite like the push pull of the wanted mechanism, because, and I think, again, that's part of learning it. You don't. You can't attack willy-nilly. If you attack everything, you'll get wanted and you'll lose tons and tons of points at the end of the game. So it's to judge when do I really need that particular action or when do I need to stop someone taking that particular action and hurrying the game along or they get a killer move they can do. That's why that's what I want to explore. I'd like to think that there's the ability to sort of time that better. Anyway, moving on to a deeply thematic game. I don't know why you've kept this one, Steve. What is it? <laughs> Mansions of Madness, Ronan. Mansions of Madness. So Mansions of Madness is an all-V1 game. Um, it's uh, set in the Cthulhu universe. That's uh, something you'd like, Sean. And um, it's uh, some investigators uh, uh, essentially um, investigating a haunted house with a Cthulhu-based uh, haunt, if you like. Um, it's a bit like Scooby-Doo, really. Pesky kids going and investigating some sort of terrible scheme and trying to thwart it. Don't tear off Sean's rubber arts. You, you won't want to see what's playing. So it's a scenario-based, uh, so the board's modular. It's fantasy flight, so it does definitely give you fantasy flight fatigue. There's no question about that. It's a little bit long. The rule books are struggle, and it seems like it's terribly complex, but once you actually play it, there's, there's really not a huge amount to it. The, uh, the guy that's running the house gets, I think it's called Threat. He gets Threat tokens over the, during each turn, which you can spend on powering up his... It's like the house gains power. While the, while the investigators are in there and he has various cards which differ by scenario which allow him to bring out different creatures or do various nefarious acts to the investigators I played it I think I played it twice both times it's, I was the, uh, the keeper, the guy running the haunted house and also the person explaining the game, it's quite hard work to explain and it's very hard to keep track of all the stuff as ever is the case with these sort of very thematic fantasy flight games I did have it up for trade, didn't I, Ronan? I seem to remember. Remember that? No. Yeah, I had it up for trade, but Ronan Ronan got in touch with me and said, I really want to play that. So, you know, what do you think? So I was like, okay. So I took it off the trade list. And uh, there it sits in my cupboard, gathering dust, (laughs) waiting for the day when Ronan finally says to me, let's please play Mansions of Madness, because I've really been wanting to. I bought this game, Steve. I actually owned it. Yes, I know you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I actually did trade it. But that's because I found it to be a little bit broken. Now, I think it's been fixed with some of the expansions and maybe the errata's come out. But there was a a game I played. Well, there you go, Steve. That's all you need to do is buy a couple of expansions and we can play it. (laughs) (laughs) That would definitely be money well spent. Yeah, there was a a couple of missions that didn't work correctly or you could get in an infinite loop and stuff like that. It it wasn't the finished article when it came out, if I remember correctly. Are you still talking about our shared mankini, the infinite loop? (laughs) (laughs) There was a second second printing. I I had the first printing and there were were numerous mistakes, uh, not only in the rule book, but also on some of the cards. But... um, when the second edition came out, I contacted Fantasy Flight and they were good enough to send me the updated cards. 
and obviously you can you can get the uh, the rule book online. Um, I think it's the sort of game that you have to you know you've got to sit down and play it in the right frame of mind. It's more of an experience rather than a you know a, a competitive game really. I mean, obviously, the keeper, the keeper can try to do his best against it's, the It's definitely something that really still interests me, Steve. So I'd be well up for playing this again. Well, it's got, it's got a lot of kind of interesting elements. It's got, those, it's got the little puzzles that you come across when you're opening the doors on some of them. Yeah, and, yeah, but there's a lot of dice rolling, you know, in my opinion, which is not... You know, you have to do horror checks every time a creature enters the room with you. or if you, So you can be constantly just rolling. And it's got that fancy flight thing of saying, right, so, you know, my, my intelligence is three, but I've got this modifier from this and that modifier from that and then the monster gives me a minus modifier and then you've got to add all that up before you know what you're even trying to roll so it's got all that going on which as I said does elicit fantasy flight fatigue but I still have it in my cupboard Um, (laughs) I spent a long time with that first edition trying to figure it all out because as you say there were problems with the rules but that is uh, something we'll probably be talking about again a bit later on in this episode (laughs) (laughs) you know I think I'm drawn to games that have problems with the rule books because there's something I have some sort of perverse pleasure in trying to figure it all out but um, masochist I will give you more age later um, when I traded my copy just a little aside I actually uh, traded it as played once great condition and then i realized that i'd had a really really crappy attempt at painting two of the figures <laughs> they're the big, the big ones they look like a two-year-old had thrown paint at it so i had to contact the poor guy and say i'm sorry trade rate in minus 30 <laughs> Um, we always like the idea of these thematic story games. Look at what we reviewed last time round. Look at what you're going to talk about as your next game, Dark, Dark, Darkest, another thematic mm. game. Zombicide, we've played it loads. We love the idea of these games. And then whenever we sit down, we torture ourselves with some two or three hour Euro where we're sitting there sweating bullets, not talking to each other, getting arsy whenever anyone takes the place on the board that we wanted to go to. And why do we do it? Why do we hate fun so much? Why don't we sit down and have a couple of beers and play some Mansions of Madness, boys? I don't understand. Uh, let's, let's do it then. Book yeah. it up. I mean, I'm up for that. I tell you, why don't I take the game and I will run the mansion for you and you can have the fun of being a player? Would you enjoy I, that? I'm happy, I don't mind. I'll play it either way. I, I, I'm happy to do it. It's just uh, It just hasn't happened yet. I'm, I'm waiting, as I said, for you. You made me keep it. I'm ready to play it. Let's do it. That's because you boys hate fun. That's the only problem. That's all it is. Speaking of hating fun and life and sunshine and wishing yes, a nuclear do. winter of yes, boredom upon the world. <laughs> right. Sean. Why, why already, is this back on my podcast? We've already had the argument over this round. <laughs> I know what's and coming up. I, I, I know, know what's how Steve up. feels about it as well. So I know I'm outnumbered. Because I begged and pleaded with Steve not to trade his copy of this. But he went and did it anyway. My game is League of Six. It has the scintillating thematic turn of you being a tax collector in the 1400s. <laughs> and what are the goods, Sean? Tell me the names of the goods. The shiny gems. The shiny gems that you get to play with, Ryan. That's enough. That's not what they're called, is it? They're called green <laughs> and red and yellow. I Judging you. Mr. Paget introduced me to this game a long long time ago and I think it may have been the first ever Euro game I ever played so maybe that's why I like it but for some reason I just really enjoyed the game I I, I bought myself a copy 
uh, when Steve brutally traded it away. And yeah, I just nobody else likes it. I think I'm the only person in the world that actually likes the game. I love the literally nobody literally. else likes it. Nobody will play this game with me. I had it. Obviously, I bought a copy and we played it. And uh, I liked it for like two or three games. I think we played it two or three times. And then that was it, though. I kind of, I think, I felt as if I'd seen all it had to offer. So I, I was like ready to. That was I think it. it's probably the the bidding mechanic that really I really like, and then it's trying to getting getting your goods, your green and your red, Ronan, to to into wherever they need to be. But um, yeah, the bidding mechanic is is just what really excited me about this. I, I'd like to at this stage point out how much of a martyr I am because I played those two or three games with Steve when he first got it. Then I played two or three games with you when you first got it. I've been through both of you, your f- obsession with this game. I'll tell you the reason it never gets played, Sean, because it's crap. <laughs> that's the only reason, that's it. Why are you going to be like that? <laughs> i tell you, again, I'm going to go back to it again. You've chosen two games with right dodgy themes, haven't you? This whole, you're part of the uh, Teutonic League and or you're kept in taxis in Czechoslovakia or whatever it may be. Uh, my my game like this, I never get played because of the theme of Strasbourg, which is a Feld auction game, which I think is great, but it's got this cruddy medieval, you're back in the guild of cobblers and the guild of bakers and the guild of butchers and it's so boring but it's a really good game league of six is just like that only it's a really bad game yeah but as yours got the court of king sigismund no didn't think so yeah move on no yeah you're right (laughs) yeah that shut me up okay let's move on to another scintillating romp it's 2004 reef encounter from richard breeze who's now a bit of a starring designing i'd say hmm reef encounter it's about coral reefs and there's definitely some coral and there's some polyps and you definitely need to get some tiles to help you do stuff and you've got some shrimps that can defend or take things or anyway when i'm learning a game okay when i when i'm know i'm going to teach it i really like to have some idea of telling where the game will go not just reading out the rules but this is what happens that's what's going to happen generally that's going to happen and then at the end something like that to give a broad strokes idea of the story of the game so that's why i play them me versus me versus me i sit and play three or four player game if I can, if I get the time, and, and play it out and try different strategies and go, okay, I have an idea and I think I can teach this better. So I did that a Reef Encounter and then I went and played a three-player game with actual people and I scored fewer than 10 points, which that's not a good score in case you're wondering. And, and I walked away after having played through myself and having played it with other people and I am clueless, clueless as does the story of this game. I don't know how you score points. I don't know how you win. But I really enjoyed it. I I rated it an 8 after my play. I went, oh, that was really fun. But I don't know what's going on. And I'm too scared to suggest it again. Because I can't teach it. And I can't help. I need to find a kind person who will very slowly hold my hand and walk me through Reef Encounter so that I can learn to love it. Because I'm utterly bemused. Run and run and reef encounter, reef encounter. I, I've stayed clear of this one. It looks hideous. It sounds hideous. If I want to encounter a reef that I'm not going out to Australia or somewhere, then I'll just buy a fish tank and stick something plastic in it. 
But yeah, it just looks awful. It doesn't appeal to me in the slightest. Wow, that's a lot of hatred. There's a lot wow. of hatred for something I've never played, but it, it looks terrible. I looked at it a few moments ago just to, just to whet my appetite. It looks awful. You know it's the same artist as Inhabit the Earth. Oh, what, that, that fantastic art with the wonky lion and the, the drug-addled zebra. <laughs> uh, yeah, Richard Brees is a good designer, mate. I don't, I don't know. Uh, what do you do in this game, then? Are you mocking me? No, I'm, just, I'm just curious. Uh, I can see that you I'm have your own player too. board. You're presumably trying to build your own reef, yeah. are you? Uh, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of, with shrimps. Then you, yeah, you yeah. need your four yeah. shrimps to do something. And um, You've just read the game description. You probably know more than I do. <laughs> so Genuinely, I was completely bemused. I was just like, what? What's happening? Why is that bigger? Why can it only be a certain size? Why has that happened to me? <laughs> it just made me cry and want my mum. Uh, is it that you just can't trade it? Is that why you're keeping it? Because no one wants it. No, 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 I'm keeping it because I really enjoyed myself and I could see other people being productive and I was going, oh, I'd love to be able to do that. How are they doing it? And I, I, I sat there and asked them, what are you doing to score points? They'd explain it to me. I go, okay, and I start doing something and it turned out to be completely the wrong thing. I, I was just, the game absolutely threw me for a loop. I had no idea. Sounds great. And from your two reaction. Maybe this is another explanation as to why it's so hard to get played. Because <laughs> I go to see people, it, it's this game, look at it, and they go, what? And then I say, it's about building a coral reef, and they go, what? <laughs> and then I say, I'm going to be awful at teaching it, and then they walk off. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you're not so, selling it very well, are you, mate? <laughs> I'm not getting a lot of support from my nearest and dearest either, am I? I think Reef Account is going to stay unplayed for a while, apparently. Um, Steve, on to a game we have played together, and, and a controversial game it is too. Yes, so this one is uh, Dark, Darker, Darkest. Oh, nicely and delivered, Steve. Well done. This is a game set in the zombie apocalypse, and um, it's, it's unusual in this zombie genre because what the story is is that um, the players are survivors, so it's a co-op, and they've actually tracked down a house where inside there is a doctor who has the antidote to the plague that's causing the zombies. So you have to go into this house and you have to try and uh, get find the doctor and you have to inject yourself with the uh, antidote and you have to escape. The problem is that once you get inside the house, obviously it's crawling with zombies and other creatures and... The doctor is locked in his lab, which is an impenetrable iron fortress. And the only way that you can get in there is by um, solving the code. And so you have to explore the house. You find items. These items have uh, colours on them, and you have to assemble a, a certain code which has been set at the beginning of the game in order to open the door to the lab. And if you manage to do that, open the door to the lab, you get the serum. You then have to fight... Uh, Dr. Mortimer, or possibly his daughter, uh, I think there are three uh, actual nemesises that come with the with the game. I can't remember who the other one is. One's his daughter, anyway. If you defeat them, then you are able to cure the world of the zombie plague, a bit like uh, Will Smith in Legend. What's not to like about that? And yeah, sure. the reason I, one of the reasons I hold on to it is because I painted it. I've actually painted the whole set. Now, I haven't done it in great detail, that's true, because there are lots of zombies and lots of creatures. But, you know, it's it looks all right. It looks all right on the table. They're not, uh, by any means, um, 
competition standard painted. I just, I just give them a black undercoat and threw a bit of colour on all the zombies. But it looks all right. It looks nice, and I really in like fairness, this game. They'd, they'd win the game pit competition, Steve. They probably, they may do. They <laughs> may do. Yeah. Uh, I've not seen any of your efforts, Ronan, but I think I've seen one or two of Sean. Yeah. There's a reason for that. Did you trade for Sean's Mansions of Madness? <laughs> I wasn't the unfortunate who got it in trade from him. Uh, the unfortunate. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there were, there, when, when this game came out, there was a lot of controversy because the rule book was pretty, pretty dire. Um, on a first read, it seemed okay, but then when you sat down to play, you realised there, um, there were lots of things which weren't fully fleshed out and uh, there, were com- there were confusions. Now, as I said, I actually got hold of it and... Be- there is now a second edition rule book, which I now have. But at the time, I got the first edition rule book and the FAQ, and I sat down and I really worked hard and tried to resolve all the issues that were in the rule book. And, I, and the plays of it that I've had, I've really enjoyed. The problem is it's quite long, and it's quite difficult to explain because it's like two games. There's the first part where you're trying to unlock the lab, and then when the if you get that far and unlock the lab, you then have a you kind of flip over the tracker board and you have another... It's like a separate game trying to defeat the nemesis. But I keep it because I'm sure I'm going to subject some of my group to it in the not-too-distant future. Steve, I actually really enjoyed the games we played of this, mate. I thought it was a, it was a really interesting take. I loved the the camera thing where they can see you, yeah. they can't see you. Really interesting game, mate. Really good crescendo to the game. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I didn't have to plough through the rule book, which I'm eternally grateful because you, you did all the hard work. And But I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's it's on my to-get list. I will not pay the price uh, that is available for st- even still now, which is £50 plus. But if I get it in trade or if it's uh, reduced down to sort of the 30 25 mark, I'll pick this up. I actually really enjoyed it. Well, this is from the designer David Ausloose, who was a shining star a couple of years ago. He had Panic Station, which sounded great. He had Rogue Agent. He had Dark Dark Darkest, and there were problems with all of them. He appears to just a barrel of good ideas and different ideas and taking a slant on game mechanics and not just retreading the same old, same old. But there seems to be the same problems with these games every time. They all need a polish. They all come out with rubbish rule books. And he's disappeared. And he didn't help himself. He was stroppy on Board Game Geek to other consumers. He was personally stroppy to me. And I'm not sure whether he wanted to fight or not. I never got to the bottom of that. But he wasn't very happy with me for some reason. And I didn't think I'd been very rude to him. Maybe I had. And, And it's a real shame. He is six foot five, though. Apparently, he's six foot five, and uh, yeah, he made that very clear. He'd see me in essence. Anyway, never mind. But I did love our play of it, and, and we had that one perfect game where I had a bullet left in the gun. The nemesis was coming towards us. The fire was raging everywhere, and I had to roll for, to hit him and kill him, and I did. Otherwise, he was going with to your kill last us. bullet. Wasn't Brilliant. It? it was just. It was yeah. literally the last bullet. I missed the second last bullet, and it was like, you know, I had two chances, and it went down to the last one, and we did it. And we were cheering and laughing. But it was the perfect game of a slightly fragile game. And do I ever want to go back? I think you do, Ronan. We need to give it another... It's a good game. We should do it again. We definitely need to do it again. I mean, uh, your your experience with him personally, I obviously, I don't know what, um, what went on there, and I can't comment on it, but... Um, for the time, I, I swapped a few emails and stuff with him when I, uh, about Dark, Darker, Darkest. 
and uh, he was really nice to me. He actually, he actually sent me a link to the uh, to his version of the second edition of the rule book before it was available. He was he was very helpful actually to me. All right, yeah, your mate David yeah. Houseloose, is it? All right, okay, taking sides, <laughs> that's fine, that's noted. Yeah, you know. But it is book. curious. He has diff- he, he has well, he has not brought anything else out, has he? He must have. Wow, he got a reputation of being difficult to right. work with, and then that was not for me clearly, but from publishers and. It's a real shame, honestly, a crying shame. He did all he, the artwork himself. Great ideas. Did, you know, he's uh, very talented. He's got a real yeah. talent, genuine talent, and I, I'd love to see him do another game, in all honesty. Sean, you just, the rubbish rule books keep coming. Hit us. Ah, oh, this is the owner of my nomination for the worst rule book in existence. Uh, my game is War Age, the card game. This is no, not not two words, not two words. One by the word. way, Warage, Warage, Warage. This one has got, oh. definitely got. It's got elements of games like Mage Wars and Codex, where which is going to come out soon. But it's also got that role playing and ability to improve yourself of something like Pathfinder and Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game. So a little bit of an amalgamation of of those types of games. It sung to me, and it was available really cheaply when I bought it. I bought it for pittance, like two or three pounds, I think, plus postage. But it really sung to me, and it just looked like it could be the perfect game for for me and my wife to expand these characters, to get them new equipment, to explore the different avenues with each character. And then we opened this rule book. And I, I say rule book, this rule sheet. Where is this piece of paper? Mm, rule. I'll, I'll accept the. I'll accept sheet. <laughs> okay. I, I think rule this sheet it. with some writing about Word the sheet. game. <laughs> it just it explained nothing about the game. We tried to play it a, a game of it, and I think somewhere in there is a fantastic game, but somebody has to write the rules for that fantastic game before you can actually play it because they didn't bother. So whether they want you to be creative and invent your own rules, I don't know. Maybe I'll do that one day. But I think somewhere there's a great idea, definitely, but somewhere there's a good game. And that's why I haven't quite got rid of it yet. I'm hoping that I'm going to find on BGG one day that somebody's written a whole rule set for it because they got bored of waiting or they just thought it might be a good game. Yeah. Warage. I'm with you, man. Warage. I opened the box and I went, oh, cool, look at these cards. These are good. Four different characters, about 150 extra cards you can mix in and stuff into 50-card decks, fight each other. Yeah, yeah, this is groovy. What? What? What's... What? This this Robert, yeah, These words, these, they're in my brain. What are they? There's not a single rule in there. There is nothing... Nothing is explained. There is no round structure. There is, so I was like, oh my god, these rules are breaking me. Maybe I'll look at the cards. Okay, and that'll start making sense. Okay, I've got a helm of Kravagnor. Okay, yeah, yeah. A, a, a corporal sword of Shimpliplop. Right, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I got that. Laser sight. What? Laser sight. With my sword. Uh, okay. Alright, maybe, maybe there's a, so they've got a god of lasers. Shield of such and such. Chainmail of that and that. Grenade launcher. <laughs> this is an actual card called grenade launcher. Like, who's what? <laughs> it's to be off. Not like some styly. It's shooting magic post. An actual 1996 grenade launcher. 
<laughs> firing at, against an orc or an elf mage. Like, what? Are these people stoned when they put this game together? I think that uh, Steve said he put a lot of effort into deciphering the rules of Dark Dark Darkest. If you want to play Rune Age, you're not deciphering these rules. You're writing the rules. <laughs> you are just making the game up. You've just sent me some components and said, design a game with these, please. Shocking. Shut up. I don't know what else to say. I can hardly play it. I think I've played it, but I think I've played it two or three different ways, and none of them are any <laughs> nearer or more related to what are allegedly the rules than any other. And I'm just bemused. How was this published in this state? Crazy. Why do you keep hold of it, Sean? Because I think there is a decent game in there. I actually, I generally do. I like the idea, and maybe it's 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 like the producer, nineteen forty to forty four. I actually maybe one day I'm going to sit down and actually try and fix those rule books because I, I think there is something good there. But yeah, I don't know if I I will ever. I'll end I'll end up. You, you boys, listen. You boys need to form a support group. <laughs> the pair you just keep buying. Games that come without rule books. The cards look nice, and I've just had a look on BGG, and there is a version one one of the rule book. Is that the one you got, Sean? It does have a t- it does have a turn structure written down. I just had a look at it. I won't be volunteering myself to try and decipher the rules for this. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure from from Ronan's description. It's the sort of game I want to play. Maybe one day someone will get that magical chance. <laughs> Once the collective wisdom of the human race deciphers what the hell these cards are for. I feel like they should be put in a time capsule and just left. Uh, I, I mean, I've never, I mean, I'd never heard of it. When, when, uh, when I saw this was one we were going to be talking about, I did try and find it and I put War Age in, into Board Game Geek, which obviously didn't turn up this game. Warage. Warage. <laughs> As I said, a bit like porridge. Uh, but porridge is probably more fun. <laughs> okay. So Sean's managed to find a, a fighting card game that's less fun than Porridge. <laughs> Go you. <laughs> so there's some good games and some bad games in there. Most of them have their good sides. Most of them have got some flaws or other. Perhaps it's pause for thought for you to think of those games in your collection that never get played. Maybe drag one or two of them out in the next month or so. We're going to move on now to our review of Nations. So, our review game for this episode is Nations by Nina Hakansen, Ina Rosen, Robert Rosen, and Rustan Hakansen. It came out originally in 2012 and it's had an expansion in 2015 Nations Dynasties. What's it all about? It's a civilization game played over eight rounds which are going to cover four different ages from ancient through to industrial and you're going to try and have the most victory points at the end of the game it's definitely in the euro style of games each player starts as a different civilization with a basic tableau in the basic game they're all the same as each other in the advanced game you can use individual tableaus for each different civilization in the game and you're looking to improve that and on there you're going to have spots for buildings and military units and you're going to have workers you can place in there to activate them and produce whatever the buildings produce and create a stronger military by using the units you're also going to have other areas for laying in 
colonies which you've conquered, taken in advisors which you've bought to lay down wonders which you've built. Now, how are you going to get these? Well, there is a, two central boards within the game. There are two central boards within the game. One is just for tracking the game state for points and who's first and who's got the strongest military and whose nation is most stable and various other things like this. It's kind of an upkeep board. The other board is where most of the action happens, and that is for holding cards. Depending on how many players in the game, there can be a various number of cards available each round for purchase. They will be in rows, costing one, two, or three gold each, and the newest cards coming in towards the top, costing more naturally. And it is these cards which you'll be purchasing as better buildings, military, to put your military out on raids, to gather some resources, to set wars at a certain military strength which may or may not affect your fellow players. You don't do direct attacks against each other, but the military strength is sort of used to determine turn order, it's used to determine how certain events play out, and it's also determined to set how strong the attacks are from outside in each of the nations and who's going to have to pay penalties for not being able to ward off these wars. The way around goes is that everyone's going to get a chance to grow, either take another worker to use at a cost or to claim some resources depending upon what level you're playing at. We then get to see what the upcoming event is going to be and famine at the end of the round so we can prepare for it. Then the main meat of it is each player gets to do one of four actions on their turn, taking one action and going to the next player until you choose to pass and play continue until all players pass. You can purchase one of those cards as discussed earlier using gold. You can deploy a worker within your particular tableau, either laying a new one you haven't used before into a building or military unit or moving them around at a cost of stone which is one of the resources in the game you can claim a wonder from the board and add architects to that wonder they're a different type of worker there's a limited pool of them each turn the expansion adds natural wonders which are built slightly differently but still it's an action to add something to wonders to help them develop and grow and also some cards will allow you to take special actions once everyone's passed then you're going to do the production of your workers within your tableau you're going to get gold stone food some places will give you victory points and you're also going to produce culture which is measured in books there are two other sort of currencies in the game stability and military but those are a constant track as opposed to being produced and spent and as you change within what you're doing and your choices and where your workers are you will track those up and down once you've done production, there will be war. As I said, this is set at the military level of the person who buys the first war off that round. And players will either have met the military standard of the war or they will have not. And that includes the person who bought the war because it's set at their current military and that can go up or down. If you don't meet the level of the war, you're going to get punished depending upon what the war is. And there are various ones of them throughout the game. And it may well cost you points. You'll definitely lose one point for losing the war. Then we have that event and famine, as we saw at the beginning of the round, we flipped over a card. The events will either give a bonus to people who are the strongest in certain areas, notably usually military or stability, and also it will cost something to those who are the lowest in areas, again, usually military or stability, but it can be various different things. Then there will be a famine and you'll have to have a certain amount of food to pay, otherwise, again, you're going to start losing victory points. We repeat this over eight rounds. The cards get wiped from the bottom two rows. The top ones get slid down if they haven't been bought, and two more come out. After the second round, we're going to the third round, we're going to go to the second age of cards, and the cards become more expensive to deploy to, but they become more effective in what they do, as you'd expect, progressing through the game. At the very end of the game, you're going to total up your VPs. You're going to earn some in-game. Any colonies you've conquered may give you VPs, and so may wonders that you have built. 
where you work as a place throughout your own civilization, they're going to give you a certain number of VPs and different buildings and again military units give you different numbers of VPs depending upon how many workers you have in them and then you add up all of your resources, you divide those by 10 and that will score you some victory points as well although that's an inefficient way of scoring points. That's an overview of nations, and we're going to start getting a little bit deeper into it. Now, one of the aspects of this game is that it's very much got interlocking economies of those different resources. First one, the one people talk about, the one that allows you to purchase cards is gold. Now, chaps, managing your gold, purchasing those cards. It's always very tempting in a card game like this to grab cards as often as possible, upgrade as soon as you can, turn over your card tableau constantly and upgrade your buildings. But there's a cost to that because whenever you replace a building, the workers in there come out and it's going to cost you stone to put them back in again. Sean, your thoughts as our resident economic game expert on how the gold works within nations? <laughs> I think with this, there's a tipping point. I think... It, well, definitely the way I play. I think there's a point in which that you you kind of got your economy up and going, and you've got the buildings and the the things that you want that are going to harvest the resources that you need to do what you want to do for the rest of the game. So, I don't that tends to come around sort of round four, round five for me, and but. Gold is certainly really important up to that point for me and a lot of other strategies. It's, it's absolutely fundamental. You need to be able to buy the buildings and keep keep bringing those cards and upgrading and upgrading all the time. But it, that's one of the beauties of this game is there are different ways you can go and there's lots of different ways you can go. But for me, I think there is that tipping point definitely of where you don't need your gold as much anymore once you've reached that point. Yeah, I mean, gold uh, gives you flexibility because it means you can get a pick of the cards um, so you need to make sure you know it's it's very difficult to judge every round how many cards you think you might want to buy because obviously you don't see them there comes a point in the game each turn when you have to choose whether you either get a work or you get a resource uh, the number of resources determined by the difficulty level that you're playing on um, and quite often I'll take gold <laughs> Probably that's why I lose a lot um, because I feel it gives me flexibility for purchasing cards and purchasing cards is essential but as you said Ronan there's that balance to strike but if you buy cards and replace something you already have workers on you then got to pay the stone in order to put the workers back on it that's kind of interesting you can't just rely on um, doing well in one resource even if you've got lots of gold and you can buy cards you also need the stone to be able to um, power the card up yeah, and I really like that. You can't just kind of spam one of the resources and go, I'll get all the gold cards I can. I'll be swimming in gold, I'll be rich in increases, and then oh, what are you going to do with it? Because you can't do anything. And also for certain cards, for example, you can't buy colony cards unless your military is strong enough to conquer that colony. So those cards are useless. You haven't got a military uh, a unit in play that's got a high raid value. You can't really buy battle cards because they're kind of useless to you. And then war cards are useless to you. So it limits what you can do. It's very difficult to just go off in one direction. That growth you mentioned though is, is interesting because it does give you some flexibility. And, and seeing as we're talking about it now, it would seem in most games because generally games placing a worker doesn't cost you anything but in this game it does so it means there's a cost benefit to switching your workers and you're spending that stone to move your workers around but it's also the stone that gives you wonders and you'd think wonders would be a really important part of a game but certainly early on because none of your workers start in play you have to put them into play and they're not giving you anything 
you're, you're kind of Robin Peter to pay Paul when you're chasing the early wonders. Switching workers, prioritising wonders over workers. I mean, early, late on wonders score you lots and lots of points, but earlier ones, obviously, the benefit will go throughout the game. Steve, any thoughts on how you're going to run that stone economy? It's really difficult. I mean, so far as the wonders go, it's very situational and depends which which ones come out. And if you get a wonder that gives you food, it might be something that you think, well, that's worth that's worth perhaps um, spending the stone on. The last game I played of this, uh, one of the players sort of uh, got got early wonders um, uh, rather than putting workers on buildings. I'm not, you know, I don't think you can do that really because you've got to get some sort of an economy going. You've got to have income. You've got to have income in all three resources really every turn, or else you're going to struggle. Um, so, uh, you know, but as I say, it depends on the wonder. That's the great thing about this game, the decisions, just thinking about it now, it's like, oh, the decisions are so difficult to make. <laughs> well, for me, with the wonders, I think, personally, I tend to go for a wonder if it fits in with the strategy that I've already got. So if it fits in, if I'm going for the culture, as Roland likes to call them, or the books around the edge of the of the board yeah some some of the wonders will give you additional books or additional stability or depending on what way you're going or additional war so yeah if they tie into what i'm doing then they're probably worth going for and if i've got the resources spare then possibly get them but i don't think that the be all and end all but they can certainly aid a strategy and and if you do if in the situation where steve uh, played with one person got few early they can maybe start directing you down the path strategy wise tactically if, if they're providing you with an income in one of those resources then they are worth having because it means you're getting that income without having to use a worker on a card to, to get the income so it frees up the workers to do other things with or you know so that's kind of what you're trying to do i feel is you're trying to get income from colonies income from wonders so that your workers are you have a bit more flexibility and you don't just have to go i've got to put a worker on the stone card because i need the stone i've got to put a worker on the food card because i need the food if you've got a wonder that's providing that food or you've got colonies that are providing the food or the stone then your workers are free to do other stuff and i think that's quite important but it's deciding at what point you're going to do it it's deciding if what the wonder's going to give you is actually worth spending the stone on at that at that particular point. It's very situational. Yeah, I, I sometimes struggle to think that what, certainly early wonders are worth that early investment in. I, I, it's hard for me to see the ones that are decent enough to really go for early. I think the late ones are worth it for points, but then by that point you generally have got less to do with your resources, so it's okay to make that risk. Now, one of the ways of growing your civilization in the game is via food. So there, are, you have the choice to take workers, but each worker is either going to cost you food, or it's going to cost you stability. And food is one of the other the main resources in there. The other thing you need food for is around famine and events. You have to pay food at the end of every round. But strangely, in a civilization game, does food ever feel as important as the gold stone economy you're growing? Because it kind of feels like, you know, it's the heart of every civilization, right? You have to be able to feed your people. And yet sometimes I tend to leave it on the back burner, but then I guess I can't grow as well. It's, it's just the third sort of strand weaving amongst the other two. The unique one in this one is it, you're right, it's not as important. It's still very important. 
but it's not as important. Say, building up as many workers as you can is always a good idea in in something like this. Like, let's go to a, a classic one like Stone Age, where you're sending your dudes to the love heart, you're making new workers, and it's always a viable strategy. I've seen people win and not increase until right very close to the end just to get those extra last points, uh, not increase their workers at all. But I've seen people just go mad and bring as much food into their economy as possible and and get as many workers out there and not win, and not even come close to winning. So, again, it's, it's a fine balance. If you do go for that massive army of workers and get as many out there as possible, then... You can, on the turn of those cards, the the events and famine cards, you can really become unstuck if that's a, a heavy sort of negative for lack of food or you have to pay a lot of food and all of a sudden you can't pay those workers. So, yeah, it is, it's another element of the game I really enjoy. It's very thought-provoking. I think uh, if a food production building comes up early, then it's definitely wise to take it because, generally speaking... If you can increase the number of workers that you have, it's going to help you, generally speaking. But once again, it's situational because you you know you can't guarantee that one of those buildings is going to come out, uh, food production building early, and you can't even if it does, you can't guarantee that you're going to get it. Your other option, of course, is to increase your stability and get your workers out that way. But uh, getting out the workers, it is you know you probably can win without doing it. But I think if you if you if you do get workers out particularly if you get them out early and you have a one or two worker advantage over the other players, I think that's going to stand you in pretty good stead uh, for the rest of the game. So, um, you know, if I saw a, a, a food production building out early, I would try, I'd jump on it if it was available and I had the gold to buy it when it came to my turn. So I think for me, this is most similar to gold in that having lots of food gives you the chance almost to make mistakes because every worker isn't as vital. If you can absolutely balance your buildings, then you don't need so many workers, but then that depends a little bit, especially when you put in the advanced and expert cards and expansion cards. It depends a little bit on what buildings are going to come become available and what advisors and what have you and uh, and how you're going to exactly you're going to own your civilization. You can play well with fewer workers but you have to really be clear on where you're going how you're going to use them don't move them around too much and every card purchased then becomes much more vital so maybe it's a more advanced way of playing and not one that i'm ever any good at now the game one of the features that get discussed a lot by people who've played it and haven't played it is that you can't directly attack each other in a civilization game but the game can and quite often becomes an arms race, which suggests to me that military is very important. Now, is it that war has enough of an impact in the game? It can be mitigated by stability. However much you lose the war by, you're supposed to lose that number of resources. But every stability you have within your empire, you're going to mitigate against that by one. So a very stable civilization will not get affected so negatively by war. Also... If you've got a strong military, you can base your economy heavily around raids and colonies. What raids allow you to do is each military unit you have has got a raid value, and and just one raid value though. And when you take a battle card, you get to claim resources up to your raid value. So you can claim six food from a raid or six gold or whatever it may need to be. And colonies are conquered, and they can give you bonuses and income as well. Uh, Military, Steve... 
how much of a focus is it? How important is it? If you get behind in the arms race, are you done? It's been said it's not as important as it should be in a civilization game. Do you agree? I think it's. I think they've got it just about right. I think it would be with this game. It would be terrible. I feel if if all that delicate balance that you had established uh, over the, the course of the game could be destroyed by another player choosing to attack you, which can often be the case in civilization games. They've introduced the military element to this game in a in a really cool way because you can even if you haven't got a particularly strong military you can you can save yourself from the the, the suffering the the war by either purchasing a war if you're able uh, if it comes to you purchasing because only one war can be bought per age so if you if you've got a low military value and you purchase the war then that is the value that the war is going to be set at and providing you're equal to it it's not going to affect you or alternatively you can um increase your stability as you said and that will offset the you'll lose a victory point but it will offset the rest of the effects uh of losing the war so i think you know the military needs to be there in a civ game this is kind of you know whilst it is a civ game it's we'll probably talk about that later but it's 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 quite abstracted and i think um whilst you can concentrate on military of course and you can do the things that you suggested around and raiding and and getting uh, colonies which is very valuable um, you are not forced into doing that and if you don't want to participate in it there are ways of still being able to um, compete in the game without having to take the military route yeah so when we first investigated this Ronan uh, I think it was back in 2013 uh, a lot of the talk was about how sort of mild the actual war mechanic was in the game and it, it wasn't very it wasn't nasty I actually find that it can actually be quite nasty. But as Steve said, there are ways to mitigate that and uh, the stability which uh, Ronan in one of our first games uh, neglected to inform me and negated that to some degree. So, uh, <laughs> so Was that bitter much? Hello? Just, yeah, a bit bitter, just a bit bitter. Well, we know who's going heavy military next time we play, don't we? <laughs> I can only agree with Steve in that I think they've hit the the mark just right I can't stand games where you can be bullied around and you have to match military if someone goes high heavy military everyone has to go heavy military that's not the case in this game you have other avenues and you can mitigate against it so I really like that aspect of the game two other things that we love about it is that turn order is based on military strong in military you're going to go first in turn order now do you sacrifice that advantage in getting the first pick of cards in order to set the war high? If you do, what that tends to start a bit of an arms race with some people that think, oh, crap, I've got to get up there, and it can really escalate things. I love that. And then when it becomes kind of a standoff, or if it goes through turn order and no one buys a war on the first go-through, it comes back again, you go, oh, <laughs> I want that card. But if I don't buy the war, it, it might be a nothing war, you know, a phony war, and, and no one's going to get threatened by it. And again, the tension of who's going to buy the war, who's going to buy the war, and the people in the middle haven't got too... You know, are they invested in buying it? Or do I think the person after me is going to buy it, the person before me? I love that aspect of it. The second thing I really like about the military is that it's difficult to stay military strong for a long time in the game because every worker that you've devoted to being in the military is not getting you an income in resources. And in fact, quite the opposite because usually there's a cost in food or stability or something to maintain units in there. And therefore... 
although it can seem an idea to just stay strong military all the way through, you will lose the game. You need to choose when to peak and trough. Peak, grab a couple of colonies, upset the other people, do a couple of raids, don't worry about it, and then come back up again and don't worry about it. Because just keeping them sitting in the military units or constantly swapping them in and out, that requires a really strong stone economy. And it can be a real drain on your civilization. And I just think that thematically works really, really well. Now, we've discussed stability as we're going through stability when i play it i tend to almost ignore it i've never made it work have you guys ever used it as the engine behind your empire it can fuel your growth it can mitigate against wars it can get you benefits from events it's definitely an option there but i never one i've been able to make work surely i don't think it's a rock solid strategy or option to take i think it is a flawed strategy i think it can work for you can work against you i think where you think i'd have done it if it was flawed <laughs> you think you would have you'd have been your lead one but yeah i think with stability as you said if somebody else goes heavy war then you're going to want to build your stability because you're not going to get hurt as much by war but also it's the flip of those uh, event cards as well and if you have high stability then you can benefit greatly from from them but that is a that's where the flaw comes into it because you might not get those cards they are randomly drawn so they are and they're they differ from game to game so one game you might benefit massively from the flip of those cards another game you might not so i don't think it's a strategy to win it's definitely a a way to to help you along your way and to build yourself that that barrier between you and maybe some of the warmongers in there i agree completely with that the 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 defense against war is really valuable if you're not going with a military strategy um but there are one or two advisors and i think there are one or two wonders which give you um, benefit, income benefit if you are highest in stability and so if they come up once again it's very situational if they come up and you get them and you build up your stability then what you're generating resources without having to spend your workers on it which as I said I think is, is what you're trying to do really, trying to give yourself uh, free workers to, to use on generating victory points however that may be uh, and not be forced to put them on particular cards just because you need the income so I think as situational is, is the thing with it. If particular cards come up, it may well be a good way to go. Yes. So, just talk about the last kind of resource you can get quickly. It's that books and culture Sean mentioned. Now, in terms of books and culture, after every two rounds, there's a scoring round. And you score a number of points equal to the number of players who have got fewer books than you. So, in a three-player game, if I'm ahead of the other two, I'm going to score two points and... The next time it gets calculated, let's score another two points, possibly eight points maybe, in a game in which scores are going to be 40s, 50s, 60s maybe, lads. So how important are they? Clearly, it's player count dependent, because if I can get four people behind me and score 16 points in the game, that's going to be more important. Is it just a throwaway? Are books important enough? For me, I'd really like that culture to be stronger and to be linked to stability and to say look i've built the pyramids this should mean more and sometimes it just from for my taste i'm always that militaristic in the games honestly i just want culture to be more important i'm a lover not a fighter steve <laughs> that's a strange thing i mean I, I always seem to feel as if i'm competing on that book track i always i i, I want to be first and get the the points 
There's also at the end of everything counts as at one point all your goods that are left over and every point of military and every point of books. So if you've got 50 books, that's five more points at the end of the game because every 10 of them counts as a point. I'm, I'm racking my brains now to think of other effects that they have. Are, are, they, are they possibly, are they on any of the um, event cards or? Yeah, it's if you get hit for something you can't pay that's you can right, pay yeah. in books so, so they, they kind of, but that doesn't happen that often does it no, no not really the, 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 the last game I played it happened a few times uh, to the to the point where one player was losing victory points because he had didn't have resources or books so then it goes to losing victory points but he went on to win the game so it obviously wasn't that bad for him yeah I, I know what you mean you know culture does in a civilization game it, it should feel important but somehow I don't know I always find myself competing I, I never sort of just go oh I'm not going to bother I think that's it. just habit that's just it may, be, yeah, it may be I, as I said I'm trying now to r- rack my brains and see what other benefits it has it's muscle memory it's, it's, it's a track that goes around the edge of the board so <laughs> yeah. you're naturally going to try and go around it <laughs> but for me I think it's it's almost like a sidekick strategy it's, it's something that's there to go in tandem maybe with something else, but it's not a viable strategy on its own. I, I'm always an exponent of points in the bank. Yeah, get, get If you've got them in the bank, then they're yours and you can look at other things. So there is that element, but on its own, you're not going to win the game off the back of concentrating on books. A book in the bank is worth a burning bush, as my mother always says. Well, yes, she ne- would. <laughs> she never said that. Okay, so we've talked all the way through that a lot of things in the game are situational, and whether that particular card's going to come out, or those wonders, or that advisor, will it all come together? You're waiting for a particular building, it never shows up. The randomness of the card draw is certainly a factor. Now, when you're playing the basic game, and you probably should start one or two games with just the basic cards, the decks have a ratio of eight buildings and four of every other type of card per age. So you have a good chance of getting a good mix of cards out. Once you add the advanced and expert decks in there and again the expansion, Nations Dynasties, you can have, have a real mix around of different cards. You can get very unbalanced and you never see a war, you never see a building or funny things can happen. Now, the game itself suggests that you maintain the ratio of cards so that no matter what the mix is, you keep eight buildings before everything else whenever you do it. But that is a pain and it takes a long time. It adds a long time to the setup and breakdown time. Is it worth it? I'm going to throw it out there to Sean. I think it is. I think you you can break the game by not doing that. I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's great for the longevity of the game if you just had completely random stuff coming out. But it makes it makes certain cards too important if only one of them come out or two of them come out and they go to certain people. I think if you know what's coming out, then... You've got a, you've got half a chance. I think it's too random if you just throw in everything there. So I think it's worth the time. Well, the rule book actually says that Nations is a friendly game, and therefore you'll feel free to mix all the cards in, and we'll all just play and have a nice time. Uh, but it says if you want to be competitive, then you should um, replace if you're putting expert, uh, advanced and expert cards in. 
you should replace uh, the basic cards. So, as you said, Ronan, we had a little discussion about this. I, I would just like to ask you a question, though. When have you ever played a friendly game of, of a medium-heavy exactly, Euro? Exactly. <laughs> I'm just saying what the rule book says. Now, I am very torn about this. Uh, this is a little bit of an issue for me. I'm quite torn about it because I, I conversely to Shaw, and I do like the sort of uh, not knowing what cards are going to come up. I do like a round that might go by where there's no war. I do like it that maybe, you know, not many production buildings come out, but I'm not, I suspect it's probably not balanced um, with that whole thing, with all the cards mixed in together. So I'm a bit torn because I'd, I'd like to think, like in the last game I played, I played a food production building came out, the first player picked it up, I was last player just by random chance. So, and he, he went on to win, though I can't say that that was because of that, it certainly wasn't just because of that one card. But it certainly gave him an advantage in the early game, and, I'm, and he got an early, he got another worker out quickly, so he, he was six to our five. I'd like to think that even if that happens, there are other things that you can do to keep yourself in the game and not fall behind. But I'm I'm not sure that's true. Uh, so I'm really torn. I don't I, I, I don't want to know what cards are coming out. I don't want it to be like through the ages where all the same cards are going to come out just in a different order. I don't. Yeah, but you don't. You don't look at what cards are coming out. You just have decks off. These are the eight age one buildings, I and that, yeah. I've got like thirty or whatever, and shuffle them up, and, and eight will come out. And what I found with, and I'm probably going to talk about it again and again, especially with dynasties, there's different types of buildings that come out that do different things, and and therefore it's not that easy to predict. I mean, the the other thing it says about the if you want to play a competitive game is that you should use the A sides, which are all the same. So each each civilization, each nation has an A and a B side on its board. and All the A sides are the same, so everyone's starting with the same starting conditions. The B sides have less building and military slots and a special power, and everyone starts with different resources. Now, it says in the rulebook, if you want to play competitively, everyone should use the A sides, which kind of makes the dynasty's expansion a bit redundant because all 16 nations in there are B sides. Um, it makes it totally redundant. The, the uh, dynasty's rulebook says you can only play it with B sides. Yeah, so uh, you know you're following the rulebook too closely. <laughs> Balance sticks are a good saying, idea. You know, we, we, we are. Idea. We like when we play. We are competitive. I mean, it's all friendly and so on, but we are competitive. So I, I don't know. I'm really torn about this. I'm finding this a little bit of an issue for me with it. I've played it every time so far with all the cards shuffled in, and um, I've enjoyed it. But I have seen it's happened to me. and It's happened to other players where they've you know, by sort of mid mid game or two thirds of the way through the game, they're kind of out of the game. The last game I played, I felt out of the game by the halfway point. Well, listen, Steve. Maybe I'm Steve, just rubbish at it. That's also a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're torn, so I'm going to solve it for okay. you. You have to seed the decks. <laughs> you have to. All right, that's it. There's no other way of playing it. It's just, it, but it does take a long time. That's it. It's a pain. Right. It is a pain. I know. But it, it, it just, I, I, it's, it's a long game, right? It takes what. Two, two and a half hours for a four-player game. I'm not going to sit there with a chance of the decks being completely unbalanced. So we've talked there about, is there a first-player advantage? Once the first player starts doing something, can you change it up? Can you go down a different route? I think we've kind of agreed that we can. There's different ways of going with the, with the stability and military and what have you. But is there a catch-up mechanism within the game? And pff, I don't think there is. Um, 
and lastly the handicapping system we talked about there's a growth phase so if you're new to the game you are able to either take a worker or take four off a resource during your growth phase as players become more experienced you can play at harder levels you can take three of a resource or two or one if you're a bit mental (laughs) so in terms of First player advantage, if someone's had a lot more games than you, do you use the handicapping system? How does it all work out for you, Steve? I've played all but one of my games on, I think it's Prince, Prince level where you get three resources. If you don't take a work, you get three of one resource. Um, And I found it very tight. Last game I played, uh, we did use the handicapping system. Two of us played on the level above Prince, so we only got two resources each, and the new player took three. Um, I think that's kind of I mean I found it it's very tight I mean resources are so tight I struggled I must say for that my first game just getting two Um, and there were were several times where I was just one short of what I needed which is you know only to be expected I suppose Um, it definitely does handicap you that's for sure I mean it's nice to have that option I think it is nice to have that option perhaps it would be better to have let her have four and we'd have stayed on three I probably would have survived that better than doing it the other way around since it was her first I'd like to second that theory by the way I've never played with less than three no way (laughs) well that's what I've played it's hard enough as it is it's tight it's it's great I mean it's a challenge there's no doubt about that Um, there is a runaway leader problem I think uh, because the rich get richer in it and if you've got you know if you've got a good economy going then you can't because you can't be directly attacked as we've already discussed there's not really very much you can do. You literally have got to try and catch up because there's no way of slowing that person down. Uh, and I have, I has, as I said, I've seen it virtually in every game where one player sort of gets left a bit behind. I'll talk to you about the runaway leader then. I think that it is counterintuitive what you have to do if you think that someone has got ahead. You need to do nothing. You need to just stop and wait and not try and chase on their coattails because if you start trying to follow them and you start spending your valuable stone and gold to try and catch up with what they're doing, you're never going to get there because they're one, two or three steps ahead. Some, the way I think to catch someone who's ahead is to stop, conserve your resources. Same as it is military. Don't keep chasing military. Conserve it. Sit tight. Be ready to pounce next time. Be ready to grab those buildings. Have the stone in hand to be able to flood your workers into those new buildings quicker than the other person can. Because if they've got a building from age two as opposed to age one, it's only going to be one resource better. The age one ones will give you, I believe it's four resources, and the age two ones will give you five resources. They're not going to get a massive lead unless you chase them and you're spending what you have. If you conserve three resources and you, you only take one less in, you're ahead of them again. And then you've got a chance to go, okay, now I'm going to grab this one and I'm going to go down a different route to you. It, I think it's a subtle catch-up mechanism that's there and it really it's hard to do, but you just have to sit in your hands a little bit. I think it's a, it's a grand theory. I'm not sure whether it works um, because... It's just that people keep catching me in the game, so I've got a couple of ways to rationalise it to myself. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're rubbish too. Um, no, I, <laughs> well, I think... You know, the, the the problem is you can sit and wait, but you're not generating... The person that's ahead will probably be generating more resources than you, so they'll be spending the resources on the turn that you're saving yours, and then they're going to generate them again because they've got better buildings and more workers on them for the following turn. So you, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to see that work. Um, it is very counterintuitive, and it's it's... It's not, it's not really a catch-up mechanism. It's, it's a strategy that you can employ, I suppose. I, I'd be interested to, to see it work. I hope it can. Maybe tomorrow I'll get the chance to try. 
Are you suggesting I deliberately start badly tomorrow? No, no. You can see it in I don't need to try and deliberately start badly. <laughs> <laughs> this is a tough game. Sure. <laughs> Sean, any thoughts on the difficulty and in terms of difficulty amongst the players in the player order? Well, yeah, just um, going back to the handicap system. Yeah, I, in theory, it sounds absolutely fantastic. I've never played with it in effect, but it's nice that they've actually thought of it and they've thought of a, a way to bring in new players. And I think, in, in my mind, I think it will it would actually work nicely because I can think of of certainly myself playing it now and bringing in a new person after playing sort of four or five games under my belt I, I I'd feel uncomfortable that starting at the same level so I'd I'd want to find that that sort of game changer that gives them half very a kind of you to offer me that Sean I accept <laughs> only if you don't cheat again anyway so um the first player I I kind of agree with what Ronan was saying that if a player does get ahead I don't know if I'd t- take stock and um, and be patient enough to wait for an opportunity to come but I think what I would do is stick on, on what I started if I've started going down a route there's no point in stopping that and then changing and chasing them because they're doing better on another route so I think it's actually quite a tactical game and you have to adjust to what's going on and you can hit military hard and then change it and switch across because I didn't get the best military unit, but I got this building which gives me a bonus in that area. So therefore, do you know what? I'm going to hit gold hard for this age or whatever. You and then okay, what's going on? Okay, if as long as you've got the stone to do it. But yeah, but you say that as long as you've got something else to do it. If you haven't got that, then what do you do? Do you, do you start from scratch? Do you build up your stone? Do you build up? If you've gone heavy for military uh, to start with and you may be just shying away from being on top in military, then, yeah, I can I can see you, you've got that foundation to be able to go and do something. You're not going to get bullied too much. But I think if you were to start on a completely, like, try and build up your stability, if you've got things that interact with your military, if you've got wonders and leaders that interact with your military, then all of a sudden saying, actually, no, I'm going to forget all about that and I'm going to build up my stability, I don't think that's a viable but those early wonders that you've got are worth no points at the end of the game. So don't worry about them. And you can only have one advisor, so don't worry about him. Get another advisor. Get one that, if you have a look and go, okay, I can grab that. You know, you can go from zero military by getting the only, let's say, age three military units to come out. I go from zero military to a military no one else can touch by moving three workers. And that, that's one of why I think is great about the game, that you're not stuck in a certain rut. You can suddenly flick around and go, uh, not 100% flick, but you can definitely flip around and go, right, I'm going that way now. Yeah, you can, but you have to have the economy to support it, you know. But putting, putting workers on those strong military units is really expensive in stone. So you've got to have, you've got to have at that point the economy. Is that not a strategy in itself? to build up so you are completely flexible you're not actually going 100% in one one of the directions but you're actually but, uh, but that's what I was saying again before it's part of kind of being able to catch up as well it's don't spank all your stuff just, just trying to eke out one resource extra resource this era because uh, you know, those buildings they're temporary there's no point throwing a lot of resources at one building unless it's part of your overall strategy or to try and catch someone don't worry about it let it go Wait for the next more powerful building to come out, save your stone, and put your people in there. And, and use that to go and, and restart and, and set off on a slightly different angle. Anyway, get bogged down a little bit here with this. 
<laughs> player counts. Uh, they obviously they affect the game. The more players you have, it's going to be slightly longer. I'm guessing I, I possibly I've played it with three players a lot and two players a bit. I've played it all player counts, but but when you have fewer players, you've got more strategic options. You can move around a bit because you've got more choice of those cards. And you can specialise, and you can change your specialisation. How does the player count affect the game, Sean, and what's your preferred player account? I, I like it with two-player, which is important to me. I think it actually it works with two-player. I don't think that's the best. I think I think three or four, but I think when you get up to five, I think that, for me, it, it makes the game a little bit long. You're waiting for your turn to come around a, li- a little bit too long, and there's, there's when, that's when I start to get twitchy. Well, but four, three or four players, I think, is the right mark for this. Well, I've never played it with four. I've played it with three and two. Um, I, I think, yeah, as you say, it does work. It works nicely with two. I think it's. I've only, as I say, I've not played four, but I think it works brilliantly with three. With f- with four, I'm sort of I'm starting to worry about the time because I, I mean, you're saying two and a half hours, Ronan. I, I've never played a three-player game that's lasted l- less than three hours. But um, uh, there's also the issue as well of that you can't really decide. You've got to wait and see what cards are available when it comes round to your turn. And so with more players, there's more cards gone. I mean, there are more cards out to begin with, so you've got more to assess. And then there are more cards getting taken before your turn comes around. So it may well be that you've got to rethink when it comes to your turn. So I can see that adding more players is going to add uh, quite a lot of playtime to it. I I don't know, as I say, because I've only played... The most I've played with is three. I think it's great with three. I'd certainly be happy to try it with four. I don't think I'd want to play it with five. I can think it would be too long. No, I, th- I find with five players, it makes it longer. It makes it harder. And it also leads to more homogenous approaches because everyone's got a bit of something as opposed to be able to grab exact things that, that marry up with each other. Now, Sean has got a particular point he wanted to discuss. That Does it feel like a civilization game? There's no map. The presentation of the game is certainly in a particular style. And how does that style affect whether the theme grabs you? And do you feel like you're running a civilization, Steve? Um, the short answer to that is no. It doesn't feel like a classic civilization game to me. I suppose that would be something like Clash of Cultures, where you've got your tech tree and you've got a map and you're moving units around on the map and, you know, all that. That, that, that's that's a sort of classic Civ game, um, so it doesn't feel like that to me. I mean, you know, the buildings, whatever they are, they're only going to generate one of three resources essentially. So they're kind of, you know, they're fairly generic. They just have different names, a little bit of different art, but they just generate more. A better building just generates more of a resource. Different buildings generate different resources, but there are only three to go around. So it has all the elements, I suppose, of a what you want to see in a Civ game, but it doesn't feel like a classic Civ game. But that's not knocking it for me. I mean, I think I really enjoy it. It's a great game. Uh, as I've said, I find, I find the decisions agonising every single turn. And, um, you know, I, 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 I won't knock it for the fact that it doesn't feel like a, a classic Civ game. No, I wouldn't knock it either, Steve. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. It, just, it doesn't feel like a Civ game at all. I mean, there are mentions of civilizations, and we're, there are sort of things that civilizations have created, like in your wonders, and there are the leaders and the advisors from from civilizations. But it doesn't feel like you are building a civilization. I, th- I think of it more of like a historical game. 
where you're going through the different ages and seeing various figures and buildings from history rather than actually building up a, a civilization you're going through a timeline definitely but you're not really building anything that would strike me as being a civilization we no one talked about the look of the game by the way which was your main point sean do you want to talk about that so yeah the look of the game run and it's what put me off in the first place i think you bought it in Essen. i didn't buy it in Essen. and one of my main reasons behind that is i just didn't like the look of the game at all the box cover is fine but those cards they look they, they they look like pastel drawings. They're they're not they're not vibrant at all. The 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 artwork just doesn't appeal to me. But what I will say about it is its functionality is spot on because those cards are quite bland. You, the pieces, the playing pieces, pop out from them very well, and I think it needs that. But in terms of general overall art style, I don't like it. I've written down here that I feel like the theme is a blanket of civilization game as opposed to a tapestry. And that is generally civvy, but you haven't got those kind of little details that make it feel like a real civ game. But I, I do think there are very clever thematic touches in the cards, and that actually when you get to know them, you go, oh, that is clever. Like the Vatican card, which is a new card, uh, <laughs> you can only put one person in there, and it gives you lots of books and stuff like that. And the different civilizations, there's powers, the B-sides, add to the civilization feel of it. Now, the theme is not hugely encompassing, but does it do what themes are supposed to do with Euro games? Does it knit it all together? Does it help with the teaching? And how is the experience of teaching what is quite a long and in-depth game? Is it complex? Is it hard to teach, Sean? No, it's not. I think the theme is there with the ages and the way that the, the different sort of things come match the ages and if you if you know any if you know sort of civ building games at all then you know you've got to feed your workers you're going to need various resources it's all there rule books fairly easy to understand and i i actually found it for a quite a complicated game i found it quite easy once i'd played the game to teach it to others uh, it's stuck because of that theme i think that theme just about holds it together yeah, I agree. The theme the theme does help uh, when you're explaining the game, and I think it's um, surprisingly simple to teach. I mean, I was listening to your overview, and I was thinking, oh my god, that sounds it does sound complex. But when you're teaching it, you're basically saying, you know, you buy one of these cards, you add it to your tableau, you can put workers on to power it up. That's basically all you need to know, and you can sort of start playing. The costs are all written on the cards. The cards, as you said, Sean, are really helpful they're kind of all very self-explanatory perhaps a little bit of text on them here and there if it's needed just to explain i think i think it's great and and um very accessible to new players i think there's a couple of things that really help with the teaching i think the color coding of all the cards is a simple touch and really helps they're clear visors are orange military buildings are red etc etc i think i agree with sean he's pointing out earlier symbology is fantastic i think the theme really helps and i help think it helps it's a real life theme you're not talking about the planes of of our Cracknor or or the dragon of Hoobdeplesh does this, but the dragon of Hoobdemesh does that. It's actual people, and people know the names already, and they know if I go and I'm claiming Brazil, Brazil is a name I'm familiar with, and that all ties it all together. I think what's most daunting when you teach it is players being overwhelmed by the strategy. They look at all the things they can do and go, well, what? 
am I supposed to be doing? And that generally takes maybe even a whole game to go through until they go, okay, I will now have much more of an idea next time I play. I know that Steve played with a new player, uh, Millie, last week, and she's been straight on saying she wants to play it again, and we're playing it again tomorrow, as we've referenced with Steve, because she feels like she's got her head around it now. And I think that is a common experience. Now, we talked about it a bit, the play length. It can go long. I think the thing that comes down to end play length of any game is whether the input of time is worth the output you're getting from enjoyment and complexity and fun. It's something we felt Fury of Dracula got wrong last time round. This time around, Steve, the play length thoughts? Yeah, it does go it can go a little bit long, but I think it's worth the time. There's never a there's never a moment when I'm not engaged. I'm always looking what what are the new cards, what new cards are going to come out this turn, or which card am I going to be able to get this turn, or if, I, or if I've got first choice, will I take this card or that card? Will I take the war? Will I take the advisor? Do I need the production? Will it's always the, the decisions are. I find the decisions in this game to be delightfully agonising. I think it's um, I think it's wonderful, and I really enjoy it, and I'm looking forward to playing it tomorrow. And I'm certain that when I've finished, even if it takes four hours, I'll be, you know, chomping at the bit to uh, play again. I think it's great. I think uh, lengthwise, it's it's just about right for where it is. It's a medium to heavyweight civilization esque uh, Euro game. So I think it's it's bang on, and I think I agree completely with Steve that the choices in the game mean that you don't feel that time going away at all. You're always thinking, you're always seeing what the other people are taking. You're always worried about who's going to take that war card, who's building up war, who's building up the stability. So you're watching all the time, but you're still at the same time thinking, I want this, I want that. And when you do, you've got to think about you're moving your workers around. So lots of decisions, and that keeps the that keeps the uh, the boredom away basically. Yeah, and I found that experience with the game really reduces playtime as well because players have an idea where they're going and they strategize not just the next card, but they plan and go, okay, these are the next two or three cards I want. If that one gets taken, okay, this is my option. And they can do that once they have an idea of how the whole thing is going to develop. Now, a very important part of any game is a pacing of the game. We've suggested that the early moves might be very important. However, the end moves of a game should be just important and I always feel that it should build to a climax. Sean, I don't want to lead you with my thoughts. Is there much to do late on? Might give you a clue though. There is, but it's kind of, it kind of ends up of a, a reshuffling of workers in any game that I've ever played. You're trying to move those workers to the cards that are going to give the most points. You're trying to eke out the those last wonders that are going to score you points at the end. So there, you are doing things, but you're almost doing things differently to uh, you've done for the rest of the whole game. You're kind of tying up the loose ends. You're making sure that you, you eke out those last few points. Yeah, the last stage is definitely a little bit different. You know, the buildings. If you if you get a new building, it's it's only, it's not going to be in play for very long. Only two two turns. You're looking for victory points. You're looking for buildings that are going to generate your victory points. Perhaps a wonder that's going to get you victory points. Uh, yeah, exactly right, Sean. You're trying to tie it all up for the end. Um, in terms of pacing, I'm not sure that's great. It's not a it's not a massive sort of climax that ending part. You basically end up on the last turn just shuffling your workers around trying to generate as many victory points as you can but you know that what happens therefore though is that those last couple of rounds go much quicker 
Um, it sort of speeds up at the end, so in, in some sense, I suppose, it, it has the climax like that. It speeds up towards its end point. I don't think it hurts the game that at all. You know, it's it's part of it. You have to be prepared that that's going to happen, but I don't think it hurts the game. It's got to end somewhere. Yeah, it's my biggest problem with the game. I think it does hurt the game a little bit. It's grab a wonder if you can, if you if you're high up in turn order, and then shuffle your dudes around. And it's a bit like, oh, after all this effort, this is where we've got to. There's no like space race like there is in the Civ, the card game, or in Clash of Cultures. There tends to be climatic big battles to grab cities from each other. It's Oh, I'll, I'll move my accountant across into HR, and I'll move my lawyer into becoming a priest. And uh, oh, look, there you go. My bureaucracy is very good. Uh, I, I wish they'd come up with a better ending. That's the one thing, the major thing I'd say. Now, we're talking about playing it again tomorrow. We've all played it a few times, and we're all still interested in the game, which suggests that there is plenty of replayability in the box. It's also got dynasties come out. We've mentioned it a couple of times. The expansion adds lots of different nations to play in. Each nation on the B-side has their own powers, but only has four slots for building military as opposed to five. It also adds extra cards into decks, which tend to work slightly differently and tweak the rules a bit to normal ones. It also adds the ability to take turmoil into your nation, which is allowing you to take two gold, which can get you out of a hole. Or it also allows you to swap your printed power on your player board for another power it all to mix around but nothing radical changing there just little tweaks little opportunities little changes how much replayability is, is there in the game steve and what are your thoughts on nation's dynasties okay there's an absolute ton of replayability in the game because it's card driven and you've got all those cards we talked about that early whether you should have them all in play or not but even if you don't have them all in play then you're still going to see different cards every game you're not going to necessarily be able to get the particular card you want. You're going to have to change your strategy. You'll be forced into it. I think there's a ton of replayability. As far as Dynasties goes, I've played with the cards, but I haven't used the B-sides. Um, I, I, I didn't see that many of the cards because I shuffled them all into the decks, uh, as, as already discussed. Ethan, Philistine! <laughs> <laughs> but a few of them came out. Uh, so The Natural Wonders, there's quite a lot of those. They're quite interesting. Um, there was a great one, uh, Hawaii, I think it is, which actually gives you a free worker. You take a worker, but you don't have to. You don't have to pay the food every turn or the um, stability, the one-off hit on stability. That's a great. Um, I think there's a ton of replayability, and and surprisingly, I'm, I wouldn't suggest you can use this as a gateway game. You certainly can't. But for people that have played a few euros, it's actually. I think they can get their head around it for. For whatever reason, it's fairly simple. As I said, you buy a card, you put it on your tableau, you can put workers on. That's basically it. I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot more to it after that, but uh, I, th- I think it's great. Yeah, I can see me playing this for a good while. It's definitely one that I'm going to keep in my collection. So on Dynasties, well, I haven't actually taken the plunge and bought Dynasties yet because it's, it's part of my new uh, thinking on expansions. I don't really play the games often enough and this is one of the games that does have loads of replayability as we've t- we've talked about it throughout the episode those bringing those additional cards in you're never going to see all the cards in an age they're going to come out in random orders you've got the double-sided player board so with all that i'm not really interested yet in getting the expansion i don't i don't see the point of it it's not like something like cv the game that came out a couple of years ago i think it was around about the same time 
and where you almost have to have it because it's such a small card deck in that game you have to have the expansion almost from the beginning this one is nowhere like that so replayability is right up there for me yeah well you're wrong because the reason you should get dynasties is because it's really fun <laughs> <laughs> so that's it it just doesn't change the game a little bit it's really fun it does, I'm just going to go for a couple of examples of what it gives you for example there's the boxes which is a late military unit which is really cheap to arm up they're almost as strong as other military units of age 4 but it's got very low raid value and if you play the game that's going to easily get you thinking going oh hold on is that worth it or not <laughs> but it allows me to get up in military oh. or the special powers they give you so like the Vikings can become Normans and all their raids are better or Mongolia with the Yuan dynasty they get to take three workers immediately that's one of the dynasty powers wow. or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth can now buy advisors and place them on wonder spaces so you can only usually have one advisor at a time but the other players can buy those advisors from Poland for three gold. <laughs> I know there's only a limited number of people who are going to play the game. Hopefully you'll think about them going, oh, that sounds fun, or uh, the Golden Horde from Mongolia, why you're that power? If anyone else buys a war, you get the money for it. Or the Portuguese Empire for Portugal, they can place colonies on wonder spaces so they can end up having loads of colonies. And that straight away has got my mind firing going, wow, if I knew those cards were in my deck, that removes some of the unpredictability of the game and I can start then building an overall strategy knowing I can take a turmoil card, it lowers my stability by two just for one round and I can then change across and grab colonies now. Or there's an Ethiopia card which makes it easier to grab colonies I believe uh, just all different things that you can do I really Dynasties is a lot of fun even just with the cards so I do recommend it a lot now we've talked about this game before we go on to our final thoughts it inevitably gets compared to other civilization games and the game which the designers admitted was the inspiration is through the ages I'm going to go back to Steve again because I know you've played through the ages Steve how do you compare that to nations or any other games you'd like to compare to okay well yes i i did have a copy of through the ages and i have had the unfortunate experience of having to explain it several times and then the even more unfortunate experience of having to try and maintain it during the course of the game it's very long um i think this is like this is kind of like through the ages version two it's it's streamlined it and in my opinion it's far more accessible and enjoyable game removing all of that terrible tedious token shuffling upkeep stuff that you have to do in through the ages oh, just the thought of it just uh, the horrible putting cards into the deck that are going to come up later they're all good ideas but it's just does uh, i found that a very 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 difficult game to uh, to play and uh, because of the the length and so on of it, it just didn't want to play anymore so this is a big improvement for me on that um it certainly would it replaces it completely in my opinion uh, yay I, I do prefer it to, to through the ages and that's giving away some of my final thoughts but i'm gonna throw a slightly different comparison out there to you i think that i find it similar to a much deeper homesteaders which is another game i love now in homesteaders you're getting areas to build into rather than actual cards but you are building up your tableau you are then getting more workers at a cost and placing them on your tableau to get resources you're then using multiple resources to buy other buildings on which you can place workers and so on and so forth it's a much quicker game homesteaders but i think the similarities there maybe 
I'll see if that tickles anyone that thought. And the other one, I think, for an abstract civilization game, I played it fairly recently, was Golden Ages. But I actually found Golden Ages, despite the fact it has got a map, more abstract than Nations. And while I enjoyed the game, it may have been that one step further removed from thematic that maybe slightly made me not enjoy it as much. But but that, there you go. Those are two games to think about. So, Sean, would you like to give me your final thoughts on Nations? Well, I would, Ronan. So, Nations, it's not the game I thought it was going to be. Put, let's put it that way. I did think it was going to be a Civ builder. There's lots of talking about going through the ages and building wonders and, and all of this going on. But it's not that. It's not a Civ game as we've talked about. What you do get is a, a deep, rich, thought-provoking process that you go through with many many routes to victory lots of things to explore lots of replayability and a genuinely rewarding experience i think for everyone who plays it throw into that the fact that you can bring people less experienced to yourself and mitigate the 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 way that they get resources to help them makes it all the better throw in that it can be played with multiple player counts with two players being almost as good as as three and four in my opinion it just makes it an absolutely fantastic game one that i want to keep in my collection and ronan you've whetted my appetite for dynasties so i might actually have to go and buy that now thank you for that nation's funnesties it should be called (laughs) steve do you want to sum up this game, uh, you know, it's kind of a sieve game, I suppose, but it doesn't really scratch that itch. We've already spoken about that. It's, it's just a great game. I mean, it's something that it keeps you engaged all the time. And so for that reason, even though it's a long game, uh, so for that reason, it's one I would recommend. And as I've said, one I'm going to keep in my collection and look forward to playing every time. So I am just going to heap more glowing praise onto Nations. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's had a fair few plays, and as you've heard, it's continued to get played. I feel like Nations Funnest East expansion has added uh, little twists, extra powers, just bits to a very solid system that are going to keep it fresh for years and years to come. It's not perfect. It needs a better end game. That's what stops it from being a top, top level game for me. And that's the only thing. But it is really important to me, the pacing of a game. And this just deflates slightly in the eighth round out of eight. I think they've done a great balancing act. I think you have to react to what other players are doing. You have to react to what's available. You have to be aware of military, but you're not obsessed with it. It's a nice, thinky workout and a really, really good game. And that's Nations. Okay, so that's episode 58 in the bag. We've had some good feedback about our new format, but please, if you uh, have got any comments about it or just some new ideas, please don't don't hesitate to give us a shout. Thank you very much, Sean, for being awesome. Thank you, Ronan. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining us again. It's been my pleasure, boys. I'm, I'm still slightly breathless looking at you in those mankinis, especially now they're a little bit damp in particular areas. Yeah, it's going to haunt your Get dreams, Paget. We're going to be running through your mind all night long. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Sorry about that outro. Oh, we. 
<laughs> we will be next time, but it will be with a different guest. Steve oh, you're not having me back. Time. Come on. No, not after the Mankini comments. You've lost it. <laughs> you, you, you're going to get us adult rated on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve will be back again with us soon. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Sean's going to see us out. And of course, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming podcasts of the highest caliber. We're also proud members of 2d6.org. Go there for written audio and visual gaming goodness. If you want to email us, our email address is thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to pop along to Board Game Geek and visit our guild, we'd love to see you there. We're also available on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. We have a Facebook page, and you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Music by Aaron. <laughs>